Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. I, I, I really felt the Holy Spirit begin to drop into my heart this word, really one final word in this series on church as a covenant family. And uh, it, was, it was very, very clear. And I, and I really feel like this is a word from God to us. I, I heard God speaking to me um, almost like a dissatisfaction with the degree to which his people love the church that he loves. And I didn't feel it or hear it as like a rebuke but just this sense that we that he wants us to love the church as he loves the church and in order to love the church as he loves the church we need to see the church as he sees the church so that's the direction we're going to go today i want to launch from a passage of scripture in first timothy we're going to look at several other passages in this message but this is first timothy chapter 3 We'll begin in verse 15. Paul says to Timothy, now this is after he was laying out the character qualifications of leadership. What's required when it comes to the character of God's people to lead in the church. He says, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. I've heard many leaders uh, in different seasons of my life talk about, you know, they'll cast vision for, for, for church and what the church is going to look like, and they'll refer to uh, the church that I see. You know, as, as the pastor, the church that I see is this, or the church that I see is this. But I think what's most important for us to understand is the church that Jesus sees. And that's what I want to talk to you today about, the church that Jesus sees. Let's pray. Father, Father, would you expose areas of our heart, maybe where we've been cavalier, or maybe we haven't even been cavalier, but we just haven't really understood because of maybe what we've seen or what we've experienced, Lord, how much you love the church, how you see the church, the household of God, the pillar, the support of the truth, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the, the, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. Father, would you open our eyes to see what you see, what is in your heart for us. Father, where we have been influenced by the culture and maybe had a very isolated mindset or individualistic approach to our pursuit of you, would you reshape that? Would you renew our mind? Would you help us to see from a different perspective? Lord, help us to love the church as you love the church. And let that translate into change in the way that we live. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I've shared with, uh, with you before uh, some of my experiences throughout my years of being a part of a lot of different churches. We had moved around from ministry quite a number of times. I think, what was it? I counted like 12 churches. That we, This is the 12th church, probably the last church <laughs> that we're ever going to be a part of. But um, I got saved back in 1995, in the mid-90s. I was in my third year at university, and I got saved into this church that was experiencing a bit of a revival. And I had a really, really great experience. My first experience with church was really a great experience. It was a place where I found spiritual fathering. There were, there were men that came alongside me and really began to father me and speak into my life and disciple me. There were really great friends that I had that began to speak into my life and, and, um, and I would speak into their lives. And it was a really great experience. And then uh, I connected with my amazing wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, Olivia, and uh, moved to Nashville, was a part of a different church from the church I was at in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was doing university campus ministry, and that eventually brought us to Australia. Uh, we moved to Melbourne in 2003, and it was another great church experience that I had there. And then I went into some other church experiences that were not as great. And not as fulfilling. And I found myself really chasing for a long time um, this experience, these experiences that I had before. And I went through some really difficult times. And we even, when we, um, we moved around a bit more back to the States, and then that really confirmed that we weren't called to be back there. And we moved back to Australia in 2013, and I started a business. And we ended up moving back to Melbourne, but it was the first move that we'd ever made that wasn't because of a church relationship. And so for the first time ever, we are like on the hunt around the city of Melbourne for a church. Do you guys remember that? Kids, I don't know if you remember going from church to church and, you know, like eight of eight, eight six kids in tow. And it's like, you know, when they're little, you just, you tell them this is the church we're going to go to. But as they get older, it's like we're all in the car leaving. It's like, well, I like this, but I didn't like this. And I like this, but didn't like this so much. And, and it, was the, it was one of the most challenging seasons of our lives. Not so much, I think the biggest challenge was that we, we had experienced something of church life and depth of relationship and connection with people that we were not experiencing at that time. And we were hungry for it. But I think about people who have had difficult church experiences, and maybe it's, you know, I think about what if the first church that I, I showed up at was, was maybe not as healthy and, and not as, as empowering, or what if there was some kind of significant disappointment that happened in my life, and then I, uh, I you know, just kind of ended up nowhere, and without this vision or thought or hope. One of the things that I really appreciate is through those years of difficulty, I knew, okay, there is a healthy church out there somewhere because I've experienced it. There is some place that we belong, some place that we can connect because I've felt this sense of deep connection and belonging and a calling of being a part of the people that God had called me to be a part of. And I found a lot of hope in that, that I can find that again. And then after uh, some time, we ended up at... Numa, and it was really in that season that uh, God began to rebirth a call to ministry 
and being around leaders that were really healthy and now here we are. But for some of us, we might, um, we might have some misconceptions of what church is like, what the church is. Our experience of church can often frame um, what we think that church is. Um, from my interaction with people in our nation, I've come across a lot of people that tend to relate to or think about church or have had an experience with church that is like in, it's an organization that puts on an event. And many see the employees of the church as the professionals who might be paid to host events that we show up at to be spiritually entertained or spiritually infotained. And so we can then approach church, as we've said in previous weeks, with a bit of a consumer mindset. And so in this model of church, the pastor is maybe the spiritual guru for that you know from a distance. Uh, maybe it's the CEO pastor who runs an organization. Uh, and in that type of a culture, people might come out of that feeling like they are uh, a means to an end. But obviously, this is not the as we've been speaking about in previous weeks, this is not God's heart for church. And this is very different language than what we've seen in this passage that we just read. Paul refers to the church in this passage as the household of God. It's familial, it's family language. And so this shouldn't be a surprise to us because God reveals himself to us as a father. Uh, it's like Paul is referring to the church as a covenant family. Um, and, and, and so, you know, several weeks ago, I was speaking on church uh, or sonship in covenant family and how leaders in church should look more like spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers than corporate executives. Discipleship or our spiritual growth in following Christ is not something that can happen from a distance uh, from a platform you know, from platform ministry, it might be a starting place. It might be a place where we hear the voice of God, obviously, but there's a deeper level of relational discipleship that God calls us to in family. And so what I want to do today is I want to unpack what it is that, what is the church that God sees? What is the church that Jesus sees? And the best place, obviously, to answer that question is not to look around us at, at churches around us, but the best place to look is in scripture. What does the God's word say about what the church is? And as I was preparing, I was a little bit, it was a little bit like late in the week for me as I felt God speaking me to me about going in a different direction. And I said, I said, God, if I'm going to speak on this, I need you to like, this has to, you got to speak like really quickly to me about what, what, what you want me to share. And so I felt these four phrases just drop into my spirit that I feel God wants to really highlight to us. And it's this, the church as the ecclesia, the church as the body of Christ, the church as the bride of Christ, and the church as the new Jerusalem. And so I want to unpack these four things briefly and really out of that, seek to understand what is the church that Jesus sees. So let's unpack these. We'll start with the church as the ecclesia. This word ecclesia is the Greek word 
that is translated church uh, into English. So anytime we see church in the New Testament, in the original language it was written in, it's this word ecclesia. Now, this is the word that Jesus chose to use uh, when he said in Matthew 16, uh, on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus took this word, ecclesia, uh, which was already a word that was commonly understood in the culture. He didn't make the word up. He didn't come up with it. The, the, those who heard him, his disciples, when they heard him say ecclesia, there was already something that they were thinking about. There, there was already this word being used in the Greek-speaking Roman culture of the day. It carried meaning. And so in the first century Roman culture, this term ecclesia was used to describe a common, uh, it was this common and well-known assembly of, uh, or gathering of Roman citizens who were called out of their home into this public space to meet together. It was a political gathering. It was to some degree uh, a religious gathering because Caesar was worshiped. He wasn't just the political leader. He was also, uh, he was like a God. They worshiped him as a God. Uh, it, they were all gathering under the lordship of Caesar. And the purpose of this gathering was to make laws in, in addition to worship him, to worship Caesar. It was, there were a making of laws. They were discussing civic matters uh, and making decisions for the city of Rome. So it was this sort of pseudo-political religious gathering in exalting Caesar. And so Jesus purposefully uses this word to say what he is establishing and what he is building. I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's saying just as Caesar has his assembly, just as Caesar has his gathering, so I will have my assembly, my gathering, my people. Something significant, something powerful will happen in this gathering of my people. They are a people whose citizenship is not in Rome, but a citizenship of heaven. It's a citizenship in the kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. It is a, it is a kingdom that transcends this world. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken like this world. And so the implication is that the church that Jesus saw is a church under his lordship that exists for his worship, but also exists for action in the world. The church is to be this proactive force for the advance of the kingdom of God. People called out of the world into this gathering, into this, this corporate assembly, um, and then sent back into the world as representatives of King Jesus, representatives of the kingdom. And this phrase, gates of hell, also carries very significant meaning with it. Um, it it's this imagery of spiritual warfare. Because what are gates? We often think of this passage as you know, oh, I don't want to be attacked by the gates, but gates don't attack. Gates don't move. Gates just sit still, still, like they're just sitting there. And so the picture that Jesus is painting here is that the ecclesia is going to be the one storming the gates of hell, 
pushing back the kingdom of darkness, bringing the kingdom of God into spheres of society and influence as those empowered and sent as representatives of the king. It's a very different picture than what we might get of the church, which tends to be seen as just these people that are just holding on the best they can, going to this weekly meeting, hearing the word just to get them through till the, the next week. When, and just we can, we can just keep everybody saved and going to heaven, then, um, you know, then, then we'll have eternal life. And that's when we'll really begin to experience the kingdom of God. But this is not the picture that we get from Ecclesia. The picture that we get is that the kingdom of God is here it's now, as representatives of the kingdom, we come out of this place into the world to extend the kingdom. So the church that Jesus sees is being equipped and empowered to advance his kingdom. And I would add to that, into realms that are currently occupied by demonic forces, powers and principalities. It's why we go to Curtin University. One of, the, one of the darkest things that you see walking around on the campus. I mean, it's, there's, it's, there's a heavy spirit there, and yet God has opened up an opportunity for us there. I love how we've got some of our ladies going into and working with Project Valentine, which is going and ministering in brothels, bringing the love of Jesus in, into that one of the darkest realms of our culture. And so whether it's our workplace whether it's through our business, whether it's in our school or whatever sphere of influence God has given us, he has called us to be a people on mission, the ecclesia who are his kingdom representatives, taking the kingdom of God, extending the kingdom of God through culture. Next, we need to understand that the, the church as the, the body of Christ. This is a very prominent part of Paul's teaching on the church. We see it in Romans 1, we see it in 1 Corinthians, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians. Paul has this revelation from God about what the church is that is crucial, particularly in that first century, very divided and isolated mindset. All this division amongst Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is trying to frame an understanding of the church that is countercultural. A lot of passages we could look at. We'll look at two. The first one is Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet, gave him, head, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So Jesus is the head of his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We'll look at one more, 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Then skipping down, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul is purposefully using this metaphor to speak into this culture. And I think it's very re relevant for us in a culture that can tend to be very isolated and independent and, and divided. And really there's two things that we see revealed in this. And the first one is that the church uh, as a body 
is dependent upon Christ as the head. Dependent upon Jesus Christ as the head. We have this unique connection with Jesus the head as the body that we can only experience as part of the body. That means if we are not part of the body, then there is a connection with Jesus that we are lacking because our identity and connection to him is not just individual, but it's corporate. There's a reason why those 18 months of our lives when we're searching around for a church, there's a reason why it was so challenging, reason why it was difficult, because there was, there was something that we were not receiving from Jesus. There was a connection that was lacking. Now, of course, I'm reading my Bible every day. We're praying. We're cultivating relationship with other people. But there was a, there was, there, there was a significant disconnect in my life because we were not immersed in this, in this, in, in a body living on a mission together. When I look back on my Christian experience, there, there have always been these key people in my life that have been so significant, that have shaped who I've come, that have helped me to get closer to Jesus. It was in a depth of relationship that I got closer to Jesus. God gave me key discipleship relationships. Remember that my first pastors, Steve and Rick, just discipled me, fathered me. Another guy named Paul, one of the most important, significant foundation layers in my life of discipleship. Other men, Dave and, and Rick, and as I'm getting older, these men became more of like brothers and iron sharpening iron type relationships, but nonetheless still people that God was calling me to, to learn from and to be sharpened by. And so people who are connected in authentic biblical church, family, and relationship grow rapidly in their relationship with God. And conversely, people who are disconnected and are not a part of healthy church family, they grow more slowly because God has called us to journey with him together in relationship with other people. We need Jesus, but his life flows to us through other people, through relationship. And, he, and Paul uses this body illustration and metaphor, and, and we can see it. You know, It's like I can, I can wiggle my toe because it's connected to my body, right? If it's disconnected from my body, there is no signal going from my brain through, to, through my foot to my toe to wiggle it. And so it's our connection in the body. This is the metaphor Paul's given us. We all have these de distinct parts of us, but we all need to remain, and, and our dependency upon Jesus is walked out in our relationship with one another. As a body, we're also united in, in dependence on one another despite our diversity. So we have this dependence on Christ. We have this dependence on one another. And, and, and the body really speaks of this unity that we walk in in diversity. I'm going to keep going for the sake of time here. But the church that Jesus sees is full of people humbly dependent upon him and upon one another. 
Next, we see in Scripture the church as the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, this is a, a profound image that speaks of the intimate and covenantal relationship that we have with Christ. It's an interesting one, though, because it's, it's one that we only have one explicit reference to in all of Scripture. We have some other kind of inferences towards from Paul, but only one explicit reference, and this is in uh, Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so this metaphor of the bride of Christ is not so much an invitation to relate to Jesus necessarily in a romantic way. It's more... Uh, Instead, this metaphor that can only be understood in the context of an understanding of the book of Revelation and what's happening and in the context of the Old Testament and his relationship with Israel. And so what what, uh, John is doing here, he's giving us a picture of the church in contrast to, you've got the bride in contrast to the harlot of Revelation, the adulteress, the, the, the prostitute. The, the unfaithful one, the, the adulteress, which in, um, in Revelation specifically was referring to uh, the nation of Israel in the first century. And then, but there's this broader picture we see throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel being called over and over again an adulteress. As I'm reading through the prophets, I was amazed, you know, even over the last couple of months of just seeing, as I'm seeing over and over again, how God is rebuking the nation of Israel and and bringing judgment upon Israel as a adulteress because he saw himself in covenant relationship with this the nation of Israel and he demanded that he alone would be the one that they worship but instead what they decided to do was to worship all of these other idols like Ashtaroth and Baal and Molech, going so far as to sacrifice their their babies on an altar to Molech and worshiping and defiling the temple of God through perverse forms of worship of the, the nations that surrounded them. And God called their idolatry uh, adultery. It's a breaking of, a, of an intimate covenant. He's given this metaphor of marriage. And what, uh, what John is saying is as the bride of Christ, we are those who do not commit adultery through our idolatry, but we are those filled with the Spirit of God who reflect holiness and purity. And so then we see Paul picking up this theme. In 2 Corinthians 11, I don't know if I put this one on the screen. Yeah, I think I did. There it is. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul saw his ministry as a leader of the church to present 
the church, the people of God, like a bride to a husband that would be pure. A pure virgin, someone who, a church that their exclusive, the, the affections of their heart are exclusively for Jesus. And we begin to see this picture that, that the idolatry of our own hearts and the idolatry of a people is seen from God's perspective as the breaking of an intimate covenant. And we see passages of scripture about how, you know, Jesus is returning for a pure and a spotless bride. And, and so this, this metaphor or this, this um, reference to the church as the bride of Christ really is, is this understanding of our own call to purity and to holiness. And we can only find purity and holiness in this journey of sanctification in our own life when we're connected in church family, in covenant family. It's in these discipleship relationships of accountability where we open up our lives to other people that we begin to get set free from things. I mean, you think about how powerful it is as I've heard stories and I've walked people through and people have walked me through these moments of deliverance where I just, just put it all out there. Here's all the dark, nasty, the, the things that, I, that were a part of my life before I came to Christ and, and, and have somebody pray with me and pray over me and break the soul ties and, and break the generational curses of, of a cult and Freemasonry and, and, you know, just breaking off the darkness off of my life. But that happened and, and, and I was able to walk in a greater purity just through putting it out there. Just, this is who I am. This is what I was a part of before. I mean, I think about even as a man, and, and I know this isn't exclusively um, <clears throat> men that battle this, but, but I, you know, when I catch up with a young man that I'm discipling or who's just come to Christ, the question is not, hey, are you struggling with porn? It's more like, how long has it been since you've struggled or battled with this? And I know in my own life, there is no possible way I could uh, walk in freedom if it wasn't for these life-giving relationships I have with other people who have covenanted to love me unconditionally, to walk with me. I mean, we are surrounded in a perverse culture and I can, you know, it doesn't matter how long you get free. All it takes is one little, you know, lack of accountability, you know, falling back into something. And the next thing you know, this door opens. And this is why we desperately need community. We desperately need church family because there is a depth of purity and holiness. We only walk out in these close relationships with other people that we trust enough to say, hey, can I just share with you how I'm struggling this week? And um, can you pray for me? This is why, why James says that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. We, don't, we, we, we confess our sins to God to be forgiven, but we confess our sins to one another to be healed. And so in 
a healthy covenant family. There's an understanding of the gospel. There's an understanding of the, the proclivity of our hearts, which is all towards following the desires of the flesh. We know who we are in Christ. We know we've been born again. We know we've been renewed and have a capacity towards uh, holiness and purity. We know that um, that this is now our tendency, our proclivity is to obey Jesus, but we also uh, are in a, we have a healthy fear of the deceptiveness of our own heart and how desperately we need to walk with other people in vulnerable, open relationships so that we can continue on this path of holiness and purity that God invites us on. So the church that Jesus sees is holy and pure in devotion to him, living out authentic and vulnerable and transparent relationships with other believers. And I just want to say in, in this, we are cultivating a culture in our church where you will never be rejected for any sin that you have ever committed. There is, there is, there is no sin that could be confessed to me that would make me blush because I've probably done worse <laughs> at some point in my life. I have crazy thoughts just like anyone else. So can I invite you to push through the demonic lie of shame that tries to get us to be silent and hide places in our life, that tries to tempt us to be isolated and to separate ourselves? That is, a, that is the biggest demonic lie uh, you know, when we feel this shame and think nobody's ever struggled with this, if I, if I bring this out into the open, into the light, I'm going to be rejected. It's going to affect my future. It's going to, you, you know, no, this, this is why God gives us family. This is why we have the gospel, because we all know how desperately we needed to be saved. We all know how depraved and dark our hearts and our mind was prior to Christ. We all know how how we have to battle every day to resist the temptations of the flesh and of the enemy and of sin that's crouching right there. Finally, the church as the new Jerusalem. This is from Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, how do we know the church is the new Jerusalem? Well, look what he says here. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Their God. Here John in Revelation fills out this bride metaphor with a city metaphor he's highlighting that the the ultimate church is this unifying this coming together of the old testament saints with the new testament saints hebrews speaks of this in reference to the old testament saints the 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 people of faith who are now a part of this great cloud of witnesses the church in heaven looking down upon the New Testament church in the earth championing us on, waiting in anxious anticipation because as the writer of Hebrews says, it was, it was uh, only, uh, it was 
it was with us that they would be made perfect. That there was something more to be done. That they are a part of, of a, uh, a great heavenly host of people. That we have been invited into this new Jerusalem. That he says will come down out of heaven at the end of time. Now, to really understand this, the beauty of the, the Jerusalem metaphor for the church, we've got to look to the Old Testament and understand that, you know, there were the New Testament Christians who were, knew they were, they were, they had imagery in their mind when they heard New Jerusalem. There were things that they were thinking of. And they knew that Jerusalem was the only place on earth, the only place on earth where God manifested his glory. There was this place, Mount Zion, the, the place where the temple was, where the, bloods of the blood of bulls and goats would, uh, through, through these sacrifices, atone for the sins of the people and make a way through the hunger of the people for the presence of God to descend in power in that one place. And so we see this when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God fell and the priests could not even stand to minister in that moment. But now we have the new Jerusalem that uh, no longer requires the sacrifice of uh, the blood of bulls and goats because the ultimate lamb has come, who's been sacrificed once and for all, for the sins of all people, people from all nations. And this people of God are now the new Jerusalem. They are the dwelling place of God. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is wherever they gather that God manifests his presence and his glory in a unique way. And so this is in stark contrast to Revelation 18, where this new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God. Revelation 18 refers to Babylon, the world system, as the dwelling place of demons. And so we are called out of the dwelling place of demons. We're called out of Babylon, we're called out of the world system into the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God, where the glory of God manifests in a unique and a powerful way. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul picks this up. So when you are, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is why the, the dwelling, the, the, the gathering of God's people is so significant. When you see these beautiful, rich, prophetic promises for Zion, for Israel, the mountain of the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, something needs to awaken in you of the, of the destiny of the church, what God has called us to. The, 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 the new Jerusalem, the, as Paul says, the, the, the inward Jews, those who are truly Jews are those who are Jews inwardly. There is only one way. If you were born a, a child of Abraham by the flesh, there is only one way into the kingdom of God. And there will only ever be one way into the kingdom of God. And we celebrate and praise God for the future promise of a great outpouring of his spirit upon 
the literal physical descendants of Israel, the, the people uh, of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, but they will only come into the kingdom through King Jesus. There will be no you know, reinstitution of, of the blood and bulls and goats. Why is that necessary? Jesus has died once for all. He is the only way into the kingdom of God. But this is why, as the dwelling place, our gathering is so significant. Because it's where God shows up. Just as God's glory would fall in the temple, His glory falls as we gather together. And we really need a revelation of this, because how could we ever be cavalier about the gathering of God's people? You know, sometimes we kind of, meh, do I want to hang out with my Christian? Meh, do I feel like hearing the word today? Meh, you know, meh. But if you had this attitude or perspective, this is the dwelling place of God. How could you ever be cavalier? How could you ever be meh about gathering together as the people of God when we have this profound revelation that when we gather together, God manifests his spirit uniquely. God begins to move in power amongst us through miracles and signs and wonders uniquely. I love hearing the stories even of people as we've checked in with them that came last week of like, man, I walked in and I had to just, I felt like I had to sit down because the presence of God was so heavy in that room. People just talking, people coming up to me, man, I've, you know, and we're talking about people that have led worship in front of large numbers of people who are like, you know, we've got our little worship team up here, which we love, anointed, powerful, but, you know, just the presence of, he was like, man, the presence of God was so tangible as we were worshiping. That was amazing. Why is that? This comes out of our hunger and recognition that we are the dwelling place of God. As Liv's preached a few months ago, this is the resting place of his spirit when we gather together. And so God calls us to this new level of vision and understanding of let's not see the church that we've seen before. Let's see the church that Jesus sees. The church that he sees is in pursuit of the presence of God, becoming his dwelling place in the earth. And I believe the more, you know, we're coming into this season where there's going to be greater and greater outpourings of spirit. As, as there is chaos in the world, as it intensifies, even as Syria now is preparing and other nations surrounding, and there's all this fear and there's all this talk of the escalation of what's happening in the Middle East, don't you be afraid. Don't you be afraid of that. Because as the, the chaos increases, man, the, the greatest revivals in history have always come amidst the greatest, uh, most darkest times. So we need to get ready. And we need to begin to be practicing this presence of God in our individual lives every day. He's with us all the time, but embracing this unique presence of his spirit that we enjoy together. Maybe the worship team come back up and let's, let's really in this, this place of revelation of understanding this church that Jesus sees. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior.
The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.